Well, it's lovely to have everyone online today. I know a few of you are still coming in, but um, we do have a big program here this afternoon, so I might start kicking off. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people who are the traditional custodians of the land that I'm coming to you from here today in the ACT and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'd like to also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we're all coming from today. We have um, well over a 1,000 people, about 1,200 people coming to our online event here today. So that's a lot of traditional custodians and lands, and I'd like to welcome you all. I'd also like to acknowledge other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are joining us online today, particularly given that we are kicking off NAIDOC Week on Sunday and remembering that the theme for this year's NAIDOC Week is for our elders we particularly want to acknowledge the elders and the traditional custodians of the lands that we're all on today. I'd also like to affirm AADC's strong support for the voice to parliament, which I think is something also that's very important to do at this stage. And I would encourage all of the organisations that are joining us here today to make their position on the voice clear if they haven't already. It's something that the AADC board feels very strongly about, and I'm happy to be able to affirm AADC support for The Voice here today. Okay, so for those of you who aren't familiar with the Australian Alcohol and Other Drugs Council, the AADC, we're the peak body for the AOD sector in Australia. Our membership is the eight state and territory peak bodies for the alcohol and other drug sector in the states and territories. The Australian Injecting and Illicit Drug Users League, AVIL, who we're partnering with on today's event, Family Drug Support, the Australasian and Professional Society on Alcohol and Other Drugs, the Drug and Alcohol Nurses of Australasia, the Australian Therapeutic Communities Association, also the National Indigenous Drug and Alcohol Committee and the Drug Policy Modelling Program at the University of New South Wales is one of our associate members in the research organisation category. So we have a pretty broad um, coverage of the drug and alcohol sector in Australia. And we're really, really happy to be partnering with our member organisation, AVIL, here today to talk about the changes to the opioid dependence treatment program and implications for access and transitional arrangements that are coming into force on the first of July. So coming up this Saturday now. So as you all know, in the May federal budget, it was announced that from the 1st of July, the more than 50,000 Australians who need treatment for opioid dependency will have funded support to access the treatment they need from their local pharmacy at a cost they can afford through a $377.3 million investment over four years in the PBS, Opioid Dependence Treatment Program. The resultant changes and transitional arrangements are going to be outlined and discussed at this event, with the online audience having the opportunity to ask any questions that they have um, arising ahead of implementation. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask you to all hold your questions until after we have the presentation, because we're hoping that the presentation will cover a lot, off a lot of your questions. So I know that people are ready to get trigger happy on their questions, but if you can just hold off and see if the presentation answers your questions before we do that. And then we're going to have a session with the, the panellists um, where we answer as many questions as we can. I'd also just like to flag that given the amount of people that we have online today, we have decided to go a little bit over time. So if you would like, you are more than welcome to stay with us until about 2.30 so that we can clear as many questions as we can during that period of time. And thank you very much to most of the panellists who are able to stay with us for a little bit longer. 
That said, we're sure that there will still be some questions coming in after that. Not all of the panellists can stay with us for a longer time. So we are going to invite you to keep punching your questions into the Q&A as we go forward with the event today. And what we're going to do is record those and take them on notice if they haven't been answered during the session. And what we'll do then is try and direct them to people who can answer them or, you know, out of session after the event. And then we're going to post up the answers to those supplementary questions on the AADC website and send them out to attendees after the event. So don't freak out if your question doesn't get answered during the session. It will be okay. We'll take it on notice and try and get you an answer before the end of the week anyway. Um, the final thing that I wanted to say before I introduce John to you from ABLE is just that this session will be recorded. So I know that a lot of people are very busy and might not be able to stay the whole time or have colleagues who aren't able to be with us at the moment. Please reassure people that this session will be recorded and the recording will go up on the AADC website within the next day or so. So that being all the housekeeping, I'd really like to introduce John Gobill from Avil. John is the new CEO of Avil and is here with us today to provide a bit of an introduction to Avil, its current work and strategic priorities. And I think it's a really great opportunity to introduce John and also talk about the work of Avil to a broader audience, because I know we have some people here with us today who might not be across the work of Avil. So, John, thank you so much for coming and um, take it away. Thank you so much, Mel. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much to the AADC team for your incredible work uh, and supporting this. Thank you for everyone being present today um, to this important forum. My name is John. I'm the new CEO of ABLE. Um, I would like to take a second to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the land on which I would live and work and extend my respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples present online today. Um, I will keep my presentation short um, today to ensure that we have plenty of time uh, to answer some questions later. Um, ABLE is the peak body representing um, the 3.4 million of people who use illicit drugs nationally and its members um, or member organization delivering frontline harm reduction services in the different states and territories. A lot of our directors, staff members, and member organizations are present today in the audience and on the panel. Many of them advocated for years uh, for the changes we're going to be discussing today uh, to improve the OTT uh, program. So today is a day of celebration, um, but we have to keep in mind that the implementation needs to be done properly to support all of our community members. ABLE's mission is to advance the health and human rights of people who use drugs illicitly in Australia, as we are the national voice of people with lived experience, including important work to support our community members, um, their well-being, our aging community members, culturally and linguistically diverse people like me, as you can hear, uh, our amazing First Nations people, and of course, people who inject drugs that are always at the core of what we do. Currently, our first priority is to actively support our network and the community to ensure coordinated advocacy and effective collaborative um, actions. We are also working very hard to strengthen our communications, policy and research strategies. People who use drugs have to be leading the discussion, um, discussions and decisions that concern them and self-determination self does matter. And our community knows what we need. And we are incredibly diverse with 
and incredible expertise um, that is key to ensure equity. Of course, one of our other priorities um, that I should mention is our collaborative efforts um, in sustainable development of our peer workforce to ensure best service delivery um, and great outcomes and best practices. On that note, our network is doing exceptional work. So thank you for everyone who is supporting AVIL, um, its member organizations, our community, and our voices. We truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, John, for providing that introduction as well. I think it's really important that we're mindful of the communities that we're serving in terms of this initiative as well. And it's really great to be able to partner with you guys to do this. And it's really wonderful to have representatives of ABLE on board on the panel too, to ensure that these voices are heard going forward in implementation. So thanks, John. Cool. So without further ado, I'll introduce David Laffin. David is the Assistant Secretary of the Pharmacy Branch in the Australian Government Department of Health and Aged Care. And David is going to give us a bit of an overview of um, the changes that are coming into force on the 1st of July. And hopefully what David's going to say will answer many of your questions. We're also popping up on um, the chat um, some information in relation to where the fact sheets can be found on the PBS website that'll also answer many of the of the other questions that you might have. So take it away, David. Okay, thanks very much, Melanie. Uh, and I'd like to also acknowledge the traditional owners uh, of the lands on which we're all meeting today. Uh, so thank you for the opportunity to come uh, and have this conversation uh, with people from all around the country who are um, you know, very interested in how the changes to the opioid dependence treatment program uh, will uh, help them. Uh, so in my current role, uh, I'm in charge of um, community pharmacy and other pharmacy items uh, for the Australian government. Uh, but in a previous role, I was, in, I was the um, person in charge or branch head in charge of alcohol and other drugs, looking after a lot of the drug treatment services and that sort of thing. Um, so I've been involved uh, in this issue for quite some time. Uh, and extremely pleased uh, and really extremely um, proud that after a program, um, after 50 years without reform, that we've actually been able to achieve what will be uh, meaningful change, uh, both to the program and what it offers for people and hopefully the difference that it will make in people's lives. Like I've certainly seen uh, from many social media uh, and other media posts, uh, the difference that this will make uh, for people out there uh, who access this therapy. So after five years of working in this space, uh, extremely proud uh, to have been, uh, you know, one of the, I think, kind of people in the in the giant government um, wheel, just a cog in that wheel, uh, but had the ability um, to, to bring this um, to life. And for this reform, I know in talking to some of the stakeholders in the drug and alcohol field, uh, this was at least the fourth or fifth serious attempt uh, at reform in the opioid dependence space. And so this has been recognised as an issue for quite a long time. Uh, and uh, finally, we've been able to make the change. So Melanie mentioned uh, as part of the introduction, the, the $377 million. Um, it, that goes to the stage supply program and the daily dosing fees that are available. The Commonwealth is also um, continues to pay for the drugs uh, and it will continue to pay for, and now, sorry, in this new scheme, we'll pay for other fees and charges that go to the pharmacist for actually dispensing that medicine. Uh, it's actually somewhere in the order of about $800 million. Um, 
that's not what we're here to talk about. We're actually here to talk about, well, what does this mean for you? Uh, and to take the opportunity to, to answer some questions about uh, how that, uh, you know, intersects uh, with your lives uh, and the things that we can do, um, the things that we are doing uh, and what it means uh, for you on a day-to-day basis. I can answer questions today about um, the Commonwealth program uh, and what the Commonwealth is doing. Uh, there will be no doubt some questions which go to, to uh, what is happening with some you know, rules and regulations or service provisions by the states and territories. Uh, we have Stephanie uh, with us uh, here from New South Wales, um, but uh, she won't be able to speak on behalf of all the states either, and I won't be able to answer uh, questions which go down to some of the detail for the, from the state and territory perspective, but I will be able to give you uh, lots of answers uh, and as much detail as you want in relation to the Commonwealth program. Uh, so the measure that is that has been uh, introduced really was to address um, the consumer voices that we heard as part of the post-market review of the opiate dependence program. Uh, and the those voices were primarily heard from a report that uh, we commissioned uh, ABLE to do. That was extraordinary, extraordinarily helpful in being able to communicate uh, with uh, our minister's office and minister about just what barriers have been faced by people accessing opioid dependence uh, treatment uh, in the past. Um, there continued, so there continue to be other issues to work on uh, after these budget announcements. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and the Commonwealth will continue to engage uh, with states and territories uh, on some of those issues. But the consumer focus component of that um, post-market review um, really had a look and highlighted some significant issues in relation to cost, in relation to access, in relation to treatment frequency, choice, transfers and also some relationships with prescribers and dispensers. Uh, the measures that are announced by the Commonwealth uh, as part of the budget really, really go towards reducing cost for consumers, uh, improving um, over time some of the access uh, for dispensers, uh, and it also lays the groundwork for some of the transfers and that sort of thing uh, in years to come. So what is it? Um, that you need to know or you want to know uh, ahead of um, the 1st of July when um, this, all this becomes available. Um, so first of all, there's no change in the medications that are available. Um, all the liquids, the tablets, the films and the injectables continue to be available um, on the 1st of July um, as they have been uh, from the 30th of June. We've put uh, quite uh, a lot of effort uh, into working with a whole variety of um, stakeholders across um, the pharmacy um, sector, as well as with our um, state and territory government colleagues to ensure the smoothest possible transition uh, into that uh, new regime, if you like. Um, so where you get your dose on day one is probably going to be the same place you got your dose uh, on the 30th of June. So I understand that the from um, our conversations with stakeholders in the lead up um, to budget, that the majority of people were paying somewhere between $150 and $200 a month uh, in private out-of-pocket fees for, um, the for their doses on a daily basis. Um, from the 1st of July, if you receive your dose at a community pharmacy, you will just pay the standard copay. 
And so that is $7.30 if you have a concession card uh, or $30 if you don't have a concession card. And all of those co-payments um, add up um, and go towards the safety net. So when you hit the safety net, which is about 34 prescriptions for a year, um, you will get the remainder of your medicine for free uh, for the rest of the year. Um, so essentially all the cost um, of dispensing the medicine, the supply of the medicine, the cost of the medicine itself, and the daily dosing fees in a community pharmacy are going to be paid for by the Commonwealth. Uh, and in fact, in the stage supply program, which is what supplies the daily dosing fees for consumers, it is a rule within that, in the community pharmacy, that they cannot charge a consumer any additional payment. Um, you will pay for that 28-day supply in the vast majority of cases, your $7.30 or your $30 co-payment. There is a very small um, difference there, and that is if two medications are required, you might have to pay two copays. For example, I do understand that for some of the films, um, occasionally there are different strengths that are prescribed by doctors. So if they prescribe a box of eight milligram and two milligram, there might be two copays involved. But for the because and that's just the way the PBS works. Uh, but for the vast majority of people, just that one small um, simple payment will cover you for 28 days supply of your medication. If you access your um, doses uh, in a public clinic, uh, I generally understand uh, that nothing will um, change uh, from day one. Uh, and Stephanie may be able to give us a little bit more detail later on about what's planned in her state. But again, I can't speak on behalf of all the jurisdictions that are, that, um, are out there. If you access your medicine through a GP, uh, and I know that a lot of people get long-acting injectables um, administered at GP clinics, that shouldn't change either. Um, if you access uh, your medication through a private clinic or a non-PBS pharmacy, uh, then you most likely uh, will have to pay the same on 1 July as what you paid on the 30th of June. I hope that if that's the case, that that is temporary, that people are able to transition as quickly as possible into a community pharmacy where the Commonwealth will pick up the bill for the um, administration and dosing uh, of your uh, medicines. And we would encourage you um, to talk to your local pharmacy um, to be able to do that uh, as soon as possible. So there are some transition arrangements um, that have been uh, put in place, and that's to ensure, for example, if you currently dose at a private clinic, that you will be able to continue to do so from 1 July. We're not just closing off the supply uh, of medicines uh, to those clinics at all. Uh, we are making sure that there's a transitional period uh, in which um, you will have the opportunity uh, to go to and make arrangements with to receive your treatment through a community pharmacy for free. That transitional period will continue to supply medicines to those private clinics for free until the 30th of November. Uh, so not all, um, I think it's reasonable to say that not all um, pharmacies um, are um, happy uh, with the change um, because it, for some it means they'll get paid a little uh, less from the Commonwealth and for some it means they'll get paid a little more. But on average, uh, the remuneration provided by the Commonwealth uh, is more than adequate uh, for the provision of this of these medicines on a day-to-day -day basis to consumers. I have seen 
some commentary, uh, again, in social media and other media outlets that um, pharmacies won't be able to afford um, to do this. Um, that is not true. Pharmacies um, won't be a, um, will have to pay for the, the, the medicines and then therefore they'll be losing money, and that is not true. Uh, all the medicines continue to be paid for uh, by the Commonwealth, as well as the fees for dispensing them, as well as the fees for providing them to you. Uh, so um, there will be, over that transitional period, uh, hopefully uh, no one uh, who's on this webinar uh, needs to see, but lots of things going on behind the scenes uh, as um, supply arrangements are transitioned, as we work with the suppliers, as we work with the wholesalers uh, to continue to ensure that um, medicines are provided seamlessly uh, to your various dosing points. Uh, and at, the, at present, um, stock availability, um, you know, particularly of um, the films and tablets and, and methadone liquids uh, is strong in the country. And in fact, there's about an extra 40% um, over and above the normal stock levels uh, in the country um, to facilitate, help to facilitate this transition. Uh, and we've certainly seen uh, from ordering patterns around the country that um, pharmacies and private clinics and others are taking advantage of ensuring that they have more than sufficient stock on hand to be able to provide that uh, through to uh, you guys as consumers. I just want to take uh, a bit of a moment to talk about um, scripts um, and what you get or what you have from your prescriber and what that means uh, on the 1st of July. So you do not need to visit a GP or another prescriber uh, ahead of the transition on 1 July. Your script remains valid uh, and the pharmacist will annotate it so it complies with the PBS requirements. There are some different legal requirements for scripts, um, both between what is um, provided now and what the PBS requires, but there are also some certain requirements that are unique to each jurisdiction as well. But you do not need to go and get a new script now. You do not need to go and get a new script on the 1st of July. Uh, essentially, all you need to do is visit the GP on the same schedule that you have visited your GP before to have your script renewed before the repeats um, expire. Um, electronic scripts. Uh, if you have an electronic script uh, on the 1st of July, that script will be printed out and annotated by the pharmacist uh, to ensure that you receive the correct dose, but your electronic script remains um, the usual legal script. Um, so uh, again, I think just to emphasize you, um, and there has been some confusion out there, but you do not need to go and see a GP now or before the 1st of July. You do not need to see a GP on the 1st of July. Just continue to see your prescriber on your normal schedule uh, and your script will be automatically updated. Um, there are transitional arrangements, again, uh, in the legislation that we have put in place to ensure that all existing scripts will be recognised uh, by the pharmacist um, to dispense uh, that medication. Uh, so I'm pretty much going to leave it there and hand, out, hand back to Melanie uh, for questions. I encourage you to have a good read of the fact sheets and in particular the consumer fact sheet uh, in the link that's been provided in the chat. Uh, and myself and the panellists will be really happy now to take your questions. So back to you, Melanie. Thank you. 
Awesome. Thanks, David. And you've also given us back a few minutes of our time to take more questions. So that's awesome as well. I know there are lots of questions coming in, but before we go to those, given that we are going to go over time so that we can get to all the questions, I just want to throw to each of the panellists, um, because as people who've been working on these changes for quite some time and or represent um, communities that are affected by the changes, I'm interested in your particular take on the most important take-homes of what David said and any questions arising that you might have initially or that you think people might have that David can clear up quite quickly. So I might throw firstly to Kirsten, who is Kirsten Buckingham is the director of the alcohol and other drug, uh, director in the alcohol and other drugs branch in the Department of Health and Aged Care, who has been working very closely with David there in pharmacy branch around these changes. Kirsten, just before we go to our other panellists, is there anything that you reckon David has missed that you would like to illustrate before we go on? Thanks, Melanie. Um, I think David has done an you know, excellent job at a broad sweep across um, all of the information. Um, I've been working with David um, over the last few years on the post-market review of um, opioid dependence treatment um, and have also been working on the implementation as we move forward to 1 July. Um, there's certainly a lot of questions that we're receiving um, coming through around how prescriptions will transition um, and what that will look like and if um, pharmacies still need to complete things like um, a dangerous drug book or that kind of recording. So just to clarify that um, we will be putting out some further information this afternoon on how prescriptions will transition and a workflow for pharmacists to give a little bit more granular detail that will step that through. Um, and also just to um, in general mention that, you know, it's still a state and territory requirement for um, Schedule 8 medicines and um, the dangerous drug book to be completed. So um, the PBS script doesn't necessarily supersede those requirements, but is to work in parallel with um, state and territory requirements for Schedule 8 medicines. Thanks, Melanie. Um, and just for anyone who can't look at the, um, the chat function on their screen because they're on an iPad or something, Kirsten, do you just want to highlight to people where those websites are, where they can find the fact sheets and the additional information? Do you just want to say that in words for people who can't see yep. the information? Yep, no worries. So if people go to the PBS website, and they go to the Opioid Dependence Treatment Program page on the PBS website. Um, there are links to fact sheets for prescribers, for pharmacists, and for people who participate in these programs. And that is where all further information um, that we will be updating will be held. So we encourage people to keep um, a bit of a close eye on that, but anytime that's updated, alerts will be sent out through PBS News. So if people subscribe to that, um, they will be notified if there's any further information on opioid dependence released. Awesome. Thank you. And I note also that the Pharmacy Programs Administrator or the PPA has released the program rules for opioid dependence treatment community pharmacy program that have been updated and they're on that website, aren't they? That's right. So um, information about the opioid dependence treatment community pharmacy program and how that will operate. Um, so that's the stage supply payments. 
um, is on the pharmacy programs administrator website. So similar to other community pharmacy programs that are administrated by the PPA, as people know it um, in the sector. So. Awesome. Yep. Thanks, Kirsten. I think that's really helpful too, that people know that there are some more detailed resources there that they can look at after this as well. Um, I might throw now to Rebecca Lang, who's the Deputy Chair of my board at AADC and also the CEO of the Queensland Network of Alcohol and Other Drug Agencies, CUNADA. Beck, what are your main take-homes from what David has said or do you have a burning question arising? Um, no, thanks, David, for that um, that overview. I think what I take away from that is how complicated these things are in the execution, right? We talk about the opioid dependence treatment program like it's one thing when in actual fact it's at least 15 different things depending on what day of the week and which jurisdiction you're in. Um, and I think what the thing that really comes through this for me is that there's only a certain number of things that are visible in an environment where we have no overarching governance structure for running this system um, of alcohol and other drugs treatment in this country. Um, so people have cobbled together kind of ways to make it work for people so that um, people who are opioid dependent in this country can access some type of support. So um, it is uh, hugely um I think frustrating for a lot of people that this what should be just a, an out and out celebration of a forward step in the evolution of the opioid dependence treatment program is um, going to be caught up in the weeds for a little while yet while we work through um, all of the workarounds that people have been um, uh, using over the last 50 years uh, to deliver this program. And I hope that this gives us an opportunity to talk with um Governments a little, again, a little more seriously about if we had uh, structures in place to actually talk with each other through the development of these policies, that maybe we would um, be able to smooth the transition process a little more. I'm seeing some people in the chat who are um, clearly feeling the pressure um, of uh, the deadline that we're fast approaching. And um, I don't want to minimize the impact that this has. Um, beyond the people accessing the program um, because those pressures are very real. Thanks, Beck. And I think it's worth noting that AADC has been having conversations with um, the government and Minister Butler's office around the need to reinstate a national governance framework for the sector. Um, and that would be something that could enable those discussions between state and territory governments and Commonwealth agencies as well as the sector that, you know, would assist in the implementation of big measures such as this. So thanks, Beck. I think that's an important point. I might throw next to Stephanie Hocking, who is the Director Director of Clinical Services and Programs with the Centre for Alcohol and Other Drugs at the New South Wales Ministry of Health. Stephanie, it's great to have you along today as well to provide a bit of an insight into the work that's been going on in state and territory government land in relation to the implementation of these changes. Um, what would you like to add to what David had to say? Um, thank you, Melanie. I, I, I think when, it, when we look at these changes, nobody really likes change and the system has reacted to the change. It is quite complex, like Beck was saying. Um, I think from a New South Wales perspective, what we're doing is we're trying to communicate as much as we possibly can with all our various treatment providers, which we've got quite a number of them in New South Wales, um, and ensure that no matter what, no one goes without their medication on the 1st of July. So what we're doing is we've set up a number of community of practices um, with all the different um, specialty groups. We um, have 
in, in addition to um, David and Kirsten's fact sheets, we've, we've done some fact sheets that are relevant to New South Wales, very specific to New South Wales. Um, we've looked at um, consumers. Um, so we've, we've worked with newer on a fact sheet that's specifically for consumers so that we can um, ensure that consumers get the information that they need so that that hopefully alleviates some of the anxiety in the system. It is a fantastic change. It is something that we've waited for for a really long time. It's great that no one is going to have to pay the exorbitant fees that, that some people have been paying. Um, but with that, there is some, some, a number of businesses that are affected in New South Wales by that, and, and understandably they're not happy. So we, we, we're kind of we're working with everybody we possibly can to try and um, ensure that there is a smooth transition or a relatively smooth tra transition and no one goes without treatment. Awesome. Thanks, mate. And I, I do appreciate that. There is a lot of work going on behind the scenes at state and territory government level, at service provider level, across different settings to ensure that people's treatment isn't interrupted during this big change. So I think that's important to acknowledge as well. Um, Chris Goff is the President of AVIL and the Executive Director of the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy here in the ACT. Chris, I know you've been working hard um, behind the scenes on these changes as part of a reference group for some time. What do you think might have um, that David might have missed or Kirsten might have missed in terms of key messages or take-homes that, that you would see from this? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mel. Um... And look, I think uh, I think you know I've I've seen uh, the last in the last couple of months um, the uh, the concern that's coming out of in particular the pharmacy section about the different changes and how uh, how they relate to the PBS system. Uh, and I think one of the one of the issues that I see is that uh, you know for the last fifty years we've we've been treating um, ODTP as as very much a, a different and separate. Uh, program, uh, which has, you know, very distinct rules and which is, is, is kind of so, so complicated, uh, that, that it has to be an, another outside of the PBS system. And so, uh, you know, for, for people, uh, to actually now, uh, kind of apply all of their knowledge around how the PBS works and uh, and how that uh, how that not you know in terms of if you're a doctor or a pharmacist um, you know how how the PBS system works it's actually quite confronting to now have to uh, kind of assimilate this program which has always been described as kind of you know there's a there's a lot of stigma and discrimination that are that are around this program and so and so I think people are struggling to. Um, to apply PBS uh, rules, uh, and and they're struggling to know exactly how you know what they can interpret in which way. And so one of the big kind of one of the big things is that through this two year or this two year or ongoing process uh, of of health of making this equitable in terms of all of the other medications that are on the PBS. Uh, one of the issues, you know, really has been that people um, people don't know how to apply those rules. So, you know, as we go forwards, I think it, uh, I think, you know, there's going to be uh, a lot of 
uh, teething issues, obviously, with this. Um, but but really, we do need to we do need to realise that this is just this is a normal uh, drug that people use, uh, and and so the move to have it as part of the PBS as an active part of the PBS, just like any other drug, uh, and aligning it essentially with all the other medications in society is really important uh, and uh, and difficult. Uh, so look, I, 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 and and I, I guess there's a bit of a conflation of different, uh, different advocacy processes and government processes here as well. And so, um, with uh, with the, the other changes that are happening in in especially to pharmacy uh, around, uh, there's also been a lot of uh, there's there's been some. Uh, it, it kind of feels like this has almost become a wedge issue, uh, and and potentially that's unhelpful. So, so look, I I think um, I think everybody has done a lot. I'd suggest that people really the PBS website actually does outline quite clearly the process uh, of how the government has. Um, has reached out to people, has talked to them, has gone through a post-market review process, has talked to doctors, has talked to pharmacists, has uh, has talked to consumers. Um, you know, uh, the issue has been in this last couple of months, uh, we, we have a deadline of the 1st of July, which nobody here is responsible for. It's just part of the political process in Australia. Uh, and so that's where the crunch is happening. And so what, what I would, what I would say is we've got a lot of consumers out there who are really in fear of not being able to get their medication on the, on the 1st of July. Uh, and, and what I see from the questions that are coming through is that there is a gap between uh, the knowledge of the system that is going to work on the 1st of July um, and how that's going to affect uh, people's ability to dose consumers on the 1st. Uh, and and that goes back to the idea of it being a normal PBS medication now as part of the S100 community commu- uh, high community needs um, part of the S100 uh, in, in that it will take some time for people to feel safe and confident to make decisions under the PBS, um, you know, for this ODTP program. Um, but in the long run, this is a fantastic uh, opportunity for us um, to really show our support for the community. We have, we are, you know, we have been paying uh, an enormous amount of money for a life-saving medication, uh, you know, highly marginalised and criminalised communities. And I would I really ask uh, everybody involved to um, to get behind the 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 ethic and the ethos of this change, which is around health equity, which is around recognizing uh, that people who use drugs and people who are on ODTP, uh, you know, do deserve to have the same uh, healthcare outcomes uh, and the same same rebates and the same abilities as everybody else. Uh, and so that's why it's been so fantastic. Um, to 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 have this align with other medications, um, Mel. I just I'm going to push a question back your way, if I may. Uh, in terms of one thing that that that, that David hasn't 
discussed is the close the gap initiative which i see coming up again and again and and which we uh we we had discussed at length uh during the consultation process to this and is and is known by government and 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 we pushed very hard to have this i i think it might be useful to uh have someone speak to that yeah i think that's a good point chris um just before i throw that one to david I think the point that you've made is really important here. Um, what we've had for a long period of time is people who are very marginalised and disadvantaged and least able to pay paying the most for medications, and that's not okay. And, you know, change is always hard, um, but this was something that did need to change. And if we can all stick together and help each other to get through this change period, then I think we're going to find that the communities we serve are a lot better off afterwards. So I'd like to thank everyone who's online today for their ongoing commitment to the implementation of this initiative and for taking the time out today to try and sort through some of these implementation issues. But you are right, Chris, I think on the chat um, that I'm going to get to soon, a lot of questions are coming in from pharmacy in particular around um, the applicability to closing the gap and how it doesn't apply to West 100 prescriptions. Um, is this something that's been considered, David, and is that part of the implementation planning? Uh, yeah, so thanks very much, Melanie. And uh, can I echo uh, Chris's comments that one of the, the driving factors uh, of moving forward with ODT here was absolutely that this is, uh, you know, should be in a situation normal, that people getting access to their medicine through a PBS, um, through the PBS like anyone else, um, you know, is definitely the goal uh, that we were going for, that this is a normal kind of supply. And both from a pharmacy perspective, um, pharmacists are used to working within those Section 100 arrangements um, for the variety of different drugs that are provided through um, that special access. It's actually about a third of the value of the PBS um, is to spend through Section 100. So this is a well-trodden path uh, for pharmacists. Uh, and also the additional mechanism for the, um, for the dosing, the stage supply program as a community pharmacy program is one of about 15 community pharmacy programs. So it's also for pharmacy a well-trodden path as well. So there can be a level of comfort there uh, as to how those systems are going to work and how people are going to be remunerated for the work they do, as well as the patients who will be able to get access um, to the medicines. So sorry for that um, small interlude. In relation to the, um, the closing the gap arrangements, so yes, we absolutely looked at the closing the gap arrangements um, when it came to bringing um, this piece of work uh, forward in relation to, to ODT. Um, we can't, uh, and so this is... A, bit of a um, quirk, if you, way, if you like, in the way the legislation actually works. We can't make um, the ODT instrument itself um, consistent with the closing the gap arrangements. And so people who would normally access, um, so First Nations people who would normally access their script for free um, can do so like they do under the general schedule Section 85 medicines. Um, because there is a separate separate Section 100 instrument which governs the whole of the closing the gap uh, arrangement. So it can't be done uh, individually, whether that's with ODT here or whether it's chemo drugs or things for cystic fibrosis or HIV or, or many of the other things that are under Section 100. So the department is engaged um, in a piece of work about how we might update the existing closing the gap legislation so that um, they can apply to all of the Section 100 arrangements, so not just ODT. 
Uh, that will require a decision from government because it will have budget implications. Uh, but we hope um, to take that to them for consideration in the not too distant future. But yes, we are actively working towards reform more broadly of the Section 100 arrangements to facilitate better access under the Closing the Gap PBS processes. Cool. Thanks, David. Ellie, I'd like to throw to you now. Ellie Morrison is the Senior Project Officer at Aval. Ellie, um, as the last panellist, I'm going to ask for a comment. What do you think hasn't been covered so far and what are you hearing from consumers about how they're feeling about these changes at this stage? Thank you, Mel. Um, we are hearing that people are, most people are incredibly grateful for these changes and not just that they're you know, going to be able to afford a medication that has in the past made many people have to choose between food and bills and other medications and this one, but also just, just the fact that they haven't been forgotten in these changes and are getting something that they feel will make them more equal to, uh, you know, everyone else in a way that they haven't been before. But having said that, there are still things about ODT that, are different for people that make it uh, that disempower people and that can make it really hard to advocate for yourself. Um, so I do want to stress that it's incredibly important for us to be giving people information um, and supporting them and just being really understanding of how stressful it can be to think that you're not going to be able to get dosed. So it is it's really incumbent on us to be able to communicate these changes clearly and support people through these changes so um so in having said that it's like just a game changer for people and I want to acknowledge all the people that worked on it over the last few years um and especially these transitional arrangements that I think we we're all a bit confused about for a while um that are now a lot more people understand it uh I think, like as Chris was saying, many pharmacists and uh, especially I think in certain areas where there's, you know, less like cities, you know, we often we have a lot of access to different people and different information. It can be a bit harder when you're out in regional areas. Um, so, you know, as long as we're not forgetting those people and doing what we can to get this information out there, it's I think it's going to make a massive change for our community. Thanks, Ellie. I really appreciate your comment. I think it's worth remembering to the role that we all have to play in getting the relevant information out there. We've got the links in the chat to the fact sheets. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that we're going to have contact with over the next couple of weeks in particular that will need to be referred to those sources for more information as well. So thank you. Um, Rightio, this is the part that we have got through the overview of this stuff. Thank you for sticking with us through that. And now we are going to get into some specific questions um, that have come through through the chat. And I'm going to try and direct these to the panellists who they are most relevant to, um, but feel free to throw them about amongst yourselves. Also, please remember that we're going to take questions on notice and publish answers later. So if everyone on the panel feels like they're, they're not qualified to take a question, just say take it on notice and we will publish the answers afterwards. So the first one I'd like to do actually came in to me via email um, rather than through the chat. So let me read it out to you. This one is from someone working in a correction setting in Victoria. 
So the question is, I am seeking confirmation regarding scripts and Medicare numbers for those that have been in prison and are released and will need their script filled in the community. The script will have been written by a prison medical officer and then released to community. In Victoria, we do not use Medicare in prisons, nor do we collect Medicare numbers on release. Prisoners are asked if they have a Medicare card and the Medicare card is not collected at any point and thereby, thereby will not be entered onto the script. The question is, does the Medicare number for those that have been in prison need to be on the script when released so that the pharmacist can claim their rebates? David, I'm going to throw that one to you first and see if you know the answer. Uh, Melanie, I definitely do not know the answer uh, to that one, uh, given that uh, my responsibilities extend uh, as far as community pharmacy uh, and the PBS. Uh, what happens in correctional facilities, both in Victoria and around the rest of the country, uh, is uh, a bit of a mystery to me. Uh, but perhaps, um, I, you know, I wonder if Stephanie might have, at least from the New South Wales experience, um, some information there that's relevant about how um, people both in the correctional facilities and on release from correctional facilities will continue to access their therapy. Excellent. The system's working. Thank you, David. Stephanie, what are you guys doing in New South Wales? So um, Justice and Forensic Mental Health or Justice Health New South Wales has worked very, very hard to, with um, Service New, um, no, not Service New South Wales, Service Australia and Medicare to get um, what they've done is a data dump. So they've got a, a number, they've given the names of all the people that are in custody at, a, at the moment across New South Wales and they've been able to obtain those Medicare numbers so they're just reconciling that at the moment. Scripts do need to have Medicare numbers on them in order to be eligible for the PIU reimbursement. So, yes, that does need to happen. So in New South Wales, we're doing the work in prisons, but we're also doing the work pre-prison. So the local health district, um, so that the New South Wales health sectors are um, going to be working with um, the prisons to ensure that um, Justice Health has the access to Medicare numbers when someone enters custody as well. So there's a lot being done at a state level, but the federal government is also helping with that. Okay, I've got some answers um, coming in through the Q&A as well on this um, from pharmacists who are, have got some helpful tips. Um, one pharmacist is saying that pharmacists have access to emergency Medicare numbers. So provided it's written on an authority prescription, they could use that as the number. Um, I've also got another one saying that pharmacists can look up Medicare numbers via PRODA, which I'm assuming is a program that a lot of pharmacies have. Um, so that's very interesting. So there are a number of ways to get around this. So thanks for that. Okay, let's go to some more questions that have come in through the chat. Obviously, we've already done the one about CTG because that has come in multiple times through the chat. I want to get to a more specific one here that's come in from another pharmacist. Can, the question is, can we charge the patients a consultation fee? And I know the answer is no on the whole, but, for example, once a month, pharmacists and patients sit in the consultation room and review the patient's progress, scripts, et cetera. This can achieve a couple of outcomes and assist with audits in reviewing the patient. Is there any scope for a consultation fee around that service? David? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, no, uh, unless that was what the patient wanted and what the patient wanted to pay for. But really, a review of progress um, is if there's the patient has a concern about their progress or if there's something else 
uh, that they might need or they're um, uncomfortable in their therapy and some changes might need to be made, then they should have a consultation with their prescriber. Thank you. Another one. How will ineligible patients, PBS, ODT, receive ODT in the community pharmacy network? Would they have to pay out of pocket for Suboxone? Uh, so I think there's still work being done in relation to Medicare ineligible patients. Um, I understand there are there are a handful, that, but very few that are around. Um, but you do need to be Medicare eligible um, to be able to uh, get the medications and access the, the programs that have been put through uh, by the Commonwealth. Thank you. So, so, Mel, more information to be published on that one. Excellent. And where might that information be able to be found when it is published, David? Uh, it will be on the consumer fact sheet uh, that's on the, the website that's already been given out. Excellent. So those consumer fact sheets are being updated, are they? They will, but they are. They have been updated uh, once already in relation to the, the prescription issue, uh, and we will update them uh, further as necessary. That's good to know. So people should keep going back and having a look, even if they've had a look at the versions that are there now. Good to know. Um, this one's an interesting one, again, from a pharmacy context. Why is the PPA data collection so nitpicky down to the days of dosing in person to the days of takeaways? That data is collected locally. Not sure why it needs to be on provided to the PPA. PPA. That's an interesting one that I didn't see coming. Would anyone like to have a go at that? Um, uh, I, can't, I actually don't understand that uh, level of detail, I think, uh, with the claiming. Um, I would have to go back and take that on notice and have a look at that one. Uh, I'm assuming that um, the PPA are asking for it for a reason, um, but we're happy to confirm that. Uh, as well, I think, you know, we are doing kind of work with software vendors as well, which will kind of integrate uh, software within that's currently used um, to record doses and that sort of thing within a pharmacy uh, with the PPA software so it's more seamless. So it's possible that there are already fields that exist uh, in some of the dose tracking software used by pharmacy. Uh, but again, I'll need to confirm. Thanks. Um, David, this is an interesting one. Is there any provision for alternative OTP, e.g. hydromorphone, fisceptone or oxycodone via New South Wales Drug and Alcohol Services? Stephanie, I might give that one to you, but David, you might want to talk about the process for onboarding new medications onto the ODTP more broadly. Sure. Uh, so before I hand over to, to Stephanie, just to say that um, at the moment, the um, instrument, the legislative instrument for um, the Section 100 ODT contains all the medicines that are available um, right now um, that you're able to get. Um, any changes uh, to that would be at the recommendation of the Independent Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee, uh, as is every listing of a medicine uh, on the PBS. Uh, and any companies that wished uh, to put forward an alternative therapy or treatment can send uh, the evidence for the efficacy, um, safety and cost effectiveness of that treatment, make a submission to the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee for listing. Uh, and if it satisfies their requirements, it will be listed. Stephanie, have you got something you'd like to add to that? Sure. Um, it's my understanding New South Wales Health does not um, provide any other alternatives. There is a study that's that's happening at the moment, a trial, a hydromorphone trial that's happening, I think that's at St Vincent's. There's very strict criteria for that. Um, 
that there are other options for medication in New South Wales. Um, so what I would advise people to do is, is talk to their GP about other options if they're not suitable for um, opioid treatment. Thank you. Um, this is one that is coming up um, numerous times in the chat. It's around um, private clinics and also private prescribers. So private prescribing, prescribing medical specialists are looking to exit providing services because of logistics issues. How will these issues be resolved? And I think this goes to a broader issue than just where we are here in terms of the 1st of July changes, but the lack of prescribers in the system nationally as well. Um, David or Kirsten, do one of you want to have a go at that one? Uh, so, Melanie, the um, prescriber uh, issue uh, is not one that we uh, engage with uh, a great deal in the, the Commonwealth. Um, the prescribers who, uh, um, you know, who write the prescriptions uh, for these uh, medicines are generally uh, licensed and, and regulated within um, state and territory frameworks. Um, we continue to have conversations um, at a national level with RACGP uh, and AMA uh, and uh, request uh, that they, um, they work with their members um, to, to make um, or to encourage their members uh, to be prescribers uh, in this field because we do know how tight uh, the um, the community is uh, in terms of being able to uh, and the difficulty at times um, certainly for um, consumers to be able to access those um, prescribing services. Uh, but Stephanie might have more detail about what uh, New South Wales does in, in practice uh, in terms of um, managing the prescriber workforce. The prescriber workforce is a very difficult one. Um, I think across Australia, where they're all in the same boat, um, definitely the demand far outweighs the um, number of prescribers that we have. We're in New South Wales, we're um, in the process of doing a workforce strategy um, and we're very happy to share that once that is um, finalised. But, yeah, I think we're all in the same boat as far as workforce goes and we're looking at a number of strategies such as nurse practitioners and attracting how we attract um, new workforce um, to, to the system. I think there's, it's something like 75% of our prescribers are over the age of 55. Yeah, Melanie, maybe, sorry, if I can jump back in, I apologise for, for cutting Why in. I have another crap, David. Um, no, I, I, I do think um, that particularly for the prescribers uh, that um, service those private clinics right now, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why um, after the announcement of this measure and in con consultation, particularly with New South Wales and Queensland who have the, the greater proportion uh, of the private clinics, uh, the engagement to facilitate this additional transition period uh, through to the 30th of November uh, provides everyone the opportunity to kind of calmly assess um, the situation, to continue their operations in the short term uh, and give consideration to what the longer term looks like. Uh, and that includes um, from, colleague, from colleagues I've had conversations with in a number of um, jurisdictions about how they might work with um, the prescribers in those particular locations uh, to continue their activities uh, in others so they're not lost to the system. In New okay. South Wales, we've done, um, sorry, 
Melanie. In Hi, Africa. guys, Stephanie. Keep going. You guys are on a, on a bit of a roll there. We, we have, um, I think it's a very sensitive situation. I think that um, at this point in time, the prescribers do want to stay with their patients in the clinics. However, due to the, due to the current situation, we need to, I think the, the people that are staying in those clinics will need to continue to um, pay for their medication. So there'll be a little bit of inequity there. Um, there's been some occasions where prescribers have been approached and, and offered um, other employment. I just think it needs to be handled really sensitively. And um, when if, if those clinics do decide to fold their businesses, which a lot of them appear to be starting to pivot now, so they may well um, survive through this, um, if there is a point where they do decide to fold their businesses, then absolutely um, we'll be approaching those um, prescribers and the other staff. I think that's a really important point and goes to some of the broader pressures on the system um, that have been existing for a while. But if I can be a little bit glass half full here, the switch to S100 also opens the door to a range of um, practitioners that are currently S100 prescribers in other spaces in terms of particularly hep C treatment who may not currently be doing ODTP prescribing but there might be an opportunity for them to pick that up given some of the crossover in the populations that they serve. So I think there's some opportunities for the Commonwealth and State and Territory Health Departments to work with some existing prescribers to bring them on board as well. So Opportunities, challenges, change is hard. Here we are and we're working it through in real time. So thank you everyone for sticking with us. I note that we're now dead on two o'clock, but we are going to keep going because there's still plenty of questions to be answered. Um, please be patient and stay online. And also remember that we're going to take questions on notice as well after this. So another very specific one that has come in through the Q&A why does the transition script process shorten the duration of the existing script? Clinic appointments and access to prescribers is not easily manipulated or varied, and I'm concerned that patients will be inconvenienced. David, do you want to start with that one? Uh, sure. I might need to hand over to, to Kirsten, who definitely understands the detail uh, of the scripts uh, a lot more than I do. Uh, but I do believe it because of the way the PBS works and in terms of the, the, the um, dispensing of medicines, it's done on a 28-day cycle, and so... Uh, yes, we have to have some uh, some uh, awkwardness, if you like, uh, a little bit of awkwardness in that tr transition to get onto that 28-day uh, cycle because that's where people will pay their single um, copay um, and access their therapy uh, from that. So, uh, yes, I do understand that the um, interval may change a little bit, uh, and yes, I do understand that that may also cause a little bit of disruption for some people. Uh, but again. This is kind of that one-off, um, maybe slightly awkward uh, reset, but a one-off thing which brings the provision of this medicine into line with all other PBS arrangements um, as a kind of a normal uh, everyday business, um, you know, opportunity. I'm happy to jump in there, Melanie, as well. Um, that's correct. Um, as, as David sort of pointed out, it is a... It is a transition period and the PBS kind of script arrangement works slightly differently to how scripts are currently set out. Um, we know at the moment scripts operate for a period of time and then they expire 
um, and they have different sorts of information on them than what a PBS script may require. So that's why we're needing to kind of um, get get some of that information into prescriptions so that they can be dispensed from 1 July and start to adjust those timeframes. And so what that means is that in some instances, people might have to return back to their GP slightly earlier um, as we're trying to move towards um, an arrangement where people would have an original script of up to 20 to 28 days and then two repeats. Um, the original and two repeats is a recommendation of the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee. Um, so we're trying to move sort of more towards that more usual PBS um, original and repeat structure rather than um, scripts that are written for a particular length of time. Um, so we've got some fairly detailed instructions in the fact sheets that are available on the website now. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, there will be further information on that coming out this afternoon. This afternoon, that's excellent. Thank you for that. Um, I've got a question in relation to one of the fact sheets. So Kirsten, I might throw this one at you first because um, you might be across this level of detail. I've got one saying that on one of the fact sheets, it states that one in, there is one injection of long-acting buprenorphine per 28 days. What if patients require their dosage earlier than that? Yep. So um, it still remains at the clinical discretion of the prescriber to direct um, when the person needs to have their injection. So the PBS provides the quantity and then the, do the doctor would decide on what day that prescription, uh, that um, buprenorphine injection would be administered. Um, we know that it's not exactly on 28 days for everyone, um, but that the max quantity is for up to that period of time. So if it needs to occur earlier, that can happen. Excellent. I've got a New South Wales specific question here, but unfortunately we've just lost Stephanie because she had to go to into another meeting. So we might take this one on notice, but I just want to note it specifically. This one's about the New South Wales Pharmacy Incentive Scheme um, and will it be continued in New South Wales to top up the payments? And what is offered by the PPA in terms of stage supply program um, is below market, is that comment. So just for the person who asked that, we will take that one on notice because we've had to lose Stephanie to another meeting. Okay. Sorry, Melanie. Yep. Um, I think the second part of that uh, in relation to the, the PPA, that stage supply program is actually relevant. Uh, from the Commonwealth perspective, because oh, excellent. Who, if you want to ask who is setting that up, so so I can't I can't talk about the practice uh, incentive payment from New South Wales and what they might plan on doing with that, but I can talk about the the opioid dependent stage supply program with PPA. Um, I do understand that there have been quite a number of different arrangements uh, around the country, and when the Commonwealth uh, looked at um, setting the prices, if you like, for what was going to be paid, um, uh, you know, for the do daily dosing uh, for consumers. Uh, we had a couple of different reference points. Uh, first was we had a lot of information from consumers that they were paying between $150 and $200 uh, a month. We had a budget submission uh, that had been made by the Pharmacy Guild in relation to an opioid dependence treatment program. Um, 
And then we also had um, some anecdotal information about some fees uh, that were paid by um, two state governments um, that provided, sorry, there's three state governments that provide a contribution um, to community pharmacy for the provision of, of the medicine. Uh, so the ACT has probably the, the most kind of publicised scheme uh, about, you know, what is a consumer contribution and what does the government pay, uh, Tas, and that's capped for consumers in the ACT. Uh, in Tasmania, they were making a contribution but still leaving the consumer contribution uncapped, uh, and essentially New South Wales were providing some additional funding, um, you know, just on a per-pharmacy and per-patient basis, on an annual basis, not on a, on a day-to-day sort of basis. Uh, so we had a variety of, of different um, data points that we used. We also had the our existing state supply program, which had a set fee, so that provided a reference point. And then we also added in um, a consumable fee uh, to that to account for, you know, the little plastic cups uh, for methadone or the takeaway doses or, you know, or that sort of thing. So in putting that all together, uh, whereas consumers um, on an unsubsidised basis in jurisdictions that weren't providing any additional funding, uh, they were paying between $150 and $200 a month. Uh, the fees that are going to be paid by the Commonwealth, taking into account all the dispensing fees and the state supply fees and that sort of thing, comes out um, anywhere between $175 and $192. Uh, and that is for the vast majority uh, of people who are on the uh, oral medications. Um, the rate um, we had seen around the country for injectables was about $50. The Commonwealth's price, as it worked out, comes in uh, at, I think, 88 sorry, $48.85, so just short of that $50. So when we say, um, comment, I've heard many comments in, in the media that what the Commonwealth is paying is underneath market rates. Well, I would say it's pitched at exactly the level we understood current remuneration to be uh, within the sector. And it was certainly consistent with, not quite as much, but consistent with the Pharmacy Guild's own uh, representations to government in a budget sense about what standing up an opioid dependence treatment program would be. So I'm very surprised to hear post-budget and post-commitment of the Commonwealth um, to fund this that all of a sudden uh, prices are above what everyone was telling us in the years in the lead up um, to that particular decision. Oh, that's an interesting bit of information there, David. Thank you. And perhaps something that um, people might want to take up with the Pharmacy Guild there. Um, I've got another specific question here that is a bit different to some of the others and goes around supply measures. So GPs cannot access the injections directly from the supplier anymore, and this will make supply more difficult for them. Um, Kirsten, I might throw this one to you because I'm sure this is something that has been discussed. Um, What are your thoughts on that and how the transitional arrangements might smooth that for people and where they might go after that period's over? Thanks, Melanie. Um, Yes, so to confirm the transitional provision that have been put in place until 30th of November apply to GP clinics. So they can continue to um, get medicines directly from the pharmaceutical wholesaler or pharmaceutical company that they have been um, up until this point and until 30th of November. Um, We understand that that's predominantly for the long-acting injectable buprenorphine where where GPs do get that um, directly at the moment. Um, But we are shifting into a more usual PBS arrangement. So 
um, in line with broader um, PBS arrangements and how the HSD program works. Um, medicines do need to be dispensed by PBS approved pharmacies. Um, so GPs, you know, following the 30th of November will need to have an arrangement in place to have those medicines dispensed um, and supplied through a, um, a PBS pharmacy. Um, we understand that that means that sometimes the pharmacy will have to get those medicines to the GP clinic. Um, we know that that happens in some jurisdictions at the moment anyway. Um, so there's different modes of transport in terms of how that occurs. Sometimes those medicines are walked there um, by the pharmacist or picked up by the GP. Um, other times they are couriered um, and sometimes um, patients are charged the delivery fee um, for those medicines. Um, so under usual PBS arrangements under the National Health Act, um, there is provision for a PBS approved pharmacies to charge a patient a delivery fee, but no more than what um, is set at the market rate for that delivery. Um, so, you know, for example, through a courier or um, Australia Post. Um, this happens more broadly in the PBS, so it's not necessarily going to be unique to um, the long-acting injectables, but it is a shift. But given that we've got a bit of a transition period, um, we're going to continue to work with the RACGP um, and the sponsors of those medicines to ensure that supply continues and we can work through the arrangements with them. Thanks, Kirsten. I think that's really helpful. Um, just a little bit of a change of pace here. This is more a consumer question. Um, and Chris, I might get you ready to respond on this after we get an answer from either David or Kirsten. Um, we've got a question here. Will the ODTP prescription info, info be visible on my health record? Uh, okay. Um, we're actually uh, looking at this this morning, trying to confirm uh, what is and isn't visible. Uh, but my understanding is no. Sec like, uh, medications under Section 100 uh, are not visible on my health record. Well, that is reassuring. Um, Chris or Ellie, do one of you guys want to just comment about how important it is that confidential confidentiality is maintained um, through these changes? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, look, I think it won't be a surprise to anybody at this forum uh, that, uh, you know, people uh, who are identified as having drug and alcohol issues uh, are often treated uh, with stigma and discrimination in healthcare settings. Uh, and so, you know, to have something like, uh, so, so for example, you know, my latest stay in a hospital, which was, uh, which was thankfully some time ago was, was definitely flavored and colored, um, by the fact that I, I myself am on a methadone program and, and it certainly wasn't rose colored glasses. Um, and so, so that's, I guess, why consumers are so concerned about where this information shows up because it really can prejudice your treatment, unfortunately. And, and hence, 
you know, again, part of the whole re- reason that we're 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 progressing these changes is, you know, is to is to decrease the stigma and discrimination surrounding people who are identified as being a person who uses drugs or a person who is dependent on drugs. And my take on it would be that I I, I can see and feel and hear the frustration of people around the nation about the speed of these changes. Um, but we really need to remember uh, and keep this patient-centred and and really make sure that we are able uh, to continue to provide good health care to people who use drugs and people uh, who are on ODTP medication. Um, and, 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 and 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 look, I, I can really feel the, the the concern about people's business livelihoods, uh, and um, and and the, and the, and and the lack of communication that has come out so far, because this has been a eleventh uh, hour change for from you know from you know it's not it's not a fault of anybody's. It's a it's part of how the system has how this issue has come through the system. Uh, so so yeah, we really do need to take the time in the next year or two. There are a, an an enormous number of changes here that that we've that this is a this is a first step. So for example, there are issues which will need to be thought about going forwards. Um, you know, around for example, how long. How long can a doctor issue a script for? Um, because at the moment it's six months, and uh, and in places around the country, those six month scripts are used uh, in cases where there are there is a lack of prescribers, uh, and so there will have to be. Uh, a back and forth about how these changes affect the system, uh, what is fair and reasonable. Uh, and so we do need uh, to to keep a forum uh, such as this open so we can make sure that we're not doing something uh, like uh, like outing somebody as a person who uses drugs in a place which isn't appropriate. I think that's an important point too and goes to, you know, the implementation of any big measure and looking out for unintended consequences. And I think, you know, the fact that the fact sheets are being updated progressively is a good thing as well in terms of keeping people up to date where this stuff is landing in real time. And on that same path, there's a question here in the chat um, about something that I'm sure has been discussed as part of the changes, but... Um, we're getting a sense through the the Q&A that um, there is a concern in pharmacy land that it might not have been factored in as strongly as it needs to be. And the comment here is many patients, not the occasional patient, many patients are on multiple strengths of buprenorphine films. Um, And that goes to um, the fees that will be applicable under the PBS model. Kirsten, do you want to just comment on the discussions around that? Thanks, Melanie. Yeah, I can comment on that. So um, under usual PBS arrangements, people pay a PBS co-payment for per pharmaceutical benefit. So what that means is per drug listed on the PBS. So if a drug is listed on a PBS with multiple strengths, that's all considered um, to be a pharmaceutical benefit per strength. So what that means transitioning over to the HSD program like other medicines on that program, is that a co-payment will be applicable um, for each um, pharmaceutical benefit prescribed. So if that's multiple strengths of films, that would be applicable in that instance. Um, The doctor would write um, a prescription for each of those strengths. 
and continue to clearly note um, for the um, pharmacy that's dispensing those medications what the dosing um, regime is for patients. So noting that there might be two strengths, but the dosing regime um, brings that together and um, is, is communicated to the dispensing pharmacist. Um, just to note on the co-payments though, if a patient is paying two co-payments um, in any given period um, as they go forward, those co-payments do apply to their PBS um, safety net. And so there is um, the potential given, uh, depending on what other medications the patient might be taking, for them to reach their safety net sooner. And then um, safety net arrangements apply where their payment might be um, zero if they're a concession card holder um, or the concessional $7.30 rate if they're a general patient. So um, while that is a little bit different by drug, um, it's consistent with how the broader usual PBS operates. Um, and so that's how we've aligned it through um, the systems through Services Australia and under the HSD program. Awesome. Um, Melanie, maybe if I, sorry, if I can quickly jump in as well. Okay. Um, I think I think that's a um, great answer, uh, you know, by Kirsten. Um, I do note that as part of the um, the the post market review process and conversations we had with some of the um, uh, the the reference group and, and sort of medical people associated with that, um, we were. Um, or we do understand that most of, for example, in terms of the films um, that are dispensed, it's multiples of eight milligram. So if you get um, two boxes of eight milligram or three boxes of eight milligram, it's still just the one copay. Uh, so, and that, that's because the maximum dispense quantity is set, I think, at about four boxes per month, roughly, um, uh, in terms of, of the dose. So if you, if you take, if you're, um, dosing regime is in the multiples of the eight milligram fill. Um, it's highly likely you're just going to pay the one copay. Um, and I do understand that for people who have um, the multiple strengths is actually a very small proportion uh, of um, of people who are um, you know dose on those particular products. Um, so yes, uh, unfortunately in that circumstance, maybe rather than as a concessional patient, seven dollars thirty. It might be fourteen dollars sixty a month, um, but it's certainly considered that's a hell of a lot better than one hundred and fifty or two hundred dollars out of pocket. I think that's a strong point you make there. Um, this one's more of a, a point that might need to be considered later rather than a question immediately. But another question from Community Pharmacy: Community Pharmacy has no guarantee that wholesalers will not increase the price above PBS listing, as ORT is S100 and therefore not bound by wholesaler agreement on PBS pricing. Has this been considered, and will it be addressed? David or Kirsten, either of you got anything on that one? Uh, I might throw that to Kirsten because she does understand the inner workings of the PBS uh, a little bit uh, better than I do, but I. I think that the prices are set in terms of the approved ex manufacturer price and and subsequently the the um dispense prop the DPMQ the dispense price for maximum quantity. But I'll uh, leave that one for Kirsten, please. Thanks, Melanie and David. Yeah, so the the PBS prices um, have been listed and set. Um, they haven't changed from what they were previously. So the actual cost of the drug um, remains the same. So there should be no reason why that, that changes going forward. 
um, while these medications are being listed under the HSD program as an S100, they have always been S100 under the PBS. Um, so there, there shouldn't be any reason for that. Um, we will be continuing to work really closely with the medicine sponsors um, and the wholesalers though, as we transition through these arrangements um, and are having ongoing discussions with them to make sure that um, the medicines are flowing through the supply chain and are working as they should. But there isn't any reason from a kind of PBS perspective that that should be the case. Excellent, thank you. Um, here's another technical question. What if there is a dose change during the month? How is the PBS script going to work? I do like technical questions because that's Kirsten's territory. Um, uh, but I do believe for a dose change that it actually requires a, a consideration by prescriber. Kirsten? Yeah, so there's probably going to be a few different circumstances um, surrounding that question, Melanie. Um, so and it, it will vary by patient and by situation. And I think this is something we're going to have to continue to work with the PSA on and the pharmacy guild on and, and to sort of flesh through all of the examples in this space. But if the patient, for example, misses a series of doses, um, general practice would be for them to go back to their prescriber and for the prescriber to review that. And that may require a new prescription. Um, if something happens and the prescriber and the patient have worked through and decided that the patient needs to go on a different um, drug or a different strength of their medication, that would require a new prescription. Um, if the patient is, for example, on methadone and the prescriber just wants to slightly increase their dose um, and that works within the maximum quantity that they've been prescribed, that would be communicated with the pharmacy as um, is current practice and there wouldn't necessarily be the requirement for a new prescription in that case. So it is going to be a little bit um, situation by situation um, and we are working through um, looking at that and how we communicate those different examples. Cool, thank you. Um, this is an interesting one about the budget for the program as a whole, which goes to um, the broader budget allocation that I spoke about over the next four years. So the question is, and David, I think this is one for you in terms of systems rather than detail. So Kirsten, you've got to approve for a sec. Um, is the funding for the program capped, David? What happens to the program if the cost of the program exceeds the amount that has been budgeted? And I think where this person's going is what if the fact that it's more accessible allows more people to come on board, which is what we're wanting? So I guess it goes to the modelling and what the implications of that are. Sure. Well, um, personally, um, you know, I hope that, uh, if people have been missing out in the past because cost has been a barrier, that we do see more people um, joining the program. Uh, so, yes, the modelling that we did uh, essentially based on um, the NOPSAD data about how many people were, you know, receiving doses in kind of different settings around the country and that sort of thing, that was provided the basis for it. Uh, but as part of, of the government decision, this money is, is, un, is ongoing uh, of course, which is really important. So it's not just a program that, you know, terminates after four years. We'll see how it actually goes um, and make a decision about continuing it. It is ongoing funding, so it is a permanent feature uh, of the Australian healthcare system now. Uh, and within that, uh, it is also not capped. 
So while the the $377.3 million that you pointed out um, earlier on, that is um, simply our estimate of where we expect uh, or what we expect to spend in relation to um, the stage supply program for the daily dosing, uh, it could be under, you know, a little bit under that um, and it could easily come under um, if more people, if there's a higher uptake, for example, of long-acting injectables uh, than we considered was to be the case uh, in our modelling because they will be more expensive on the PBS side of the ledger but less expensive on the administration side of the ledger. Um, but if we do have uh, more people who, who join the program um, and, you know, they do so because uh, previously the cost has been a barrier, then we will go back to government with an estimates variation year on year, which is just kind of a, you know, boring technical um, piece of paper. We have to agree with the Department of Finance, um, but essentially um, there's no uh, cap on it in the sense that um, if, it, if the amount of money was exceeded, you know, we would have to stop in June or something and wait for a new year in July. That's absolutely not the case. Um, the, you know, if you turn up at a community pharmacy and you are eligible for receiving this service, you receive the service and pharmacy will be remunerated for it. Thank you. I think that's important too. Um, so in short, the answer is there is no cap and we will keep going. Um, I've got one here that I think is interesting in terms of compliance um, and noting that we're coming up on 2.30 and I am going to try and wind us up close to then. Um, and I think this goes to regulatory regimes and um, in implementation. David, some community pharmacies have said that they won't honour transition prescriptions and they want a new PBS one. Who do you call if that happens? Well, that's, that's the first time I've heard that. Um, but, you know, I would say that the person who has uh, a prescription, uh, regardless of when that was written, it is a legal prescription um, and can be filled. And, and I don't understand why uh, community pharmacy would not honour that, given that it is a legal prescription. Can I jump in here, Mel, if that's all right? Yes, please do. Look, I, I think, you know, I mean, I know, I know there has been, uh, you know, the, 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 this has been a quite an acrimonious process in the last couple of weeks. Um, but I, I think we all really just need to make sure that we understand that that we are doing this for a highly marginalised community uh, who, who really require this medication. And so, you know, when we're trying to wrap our heads around this new system, we have to make sure that we protect consumers and protect people who are dependent on this medication uh, and make sure that uh, we aren't using technicalities uh, in order to cut off people's doses suddenly. Uh, it's really integral that um that anger um or frustration uh doesn't spill over uh into a, a group of people who really have the least power in this situation and so i would really just um i would really plead with uh, pharmacists and doctors um you know to to you know to to, to be compassionate in the next couple of months uh, and, and to make sure that the priority uh, is, is making sure that people who are on ODTP are able to access it. I think that's a really important point you're making there, Chris. Um, this is going to be a difficult period of time for a number of people and I'm sure that everyone is mindful of their responsibility in terms of duty of care to some very vulnerable and marginalised people through this period of time. 
I'm going to ask one more detailed question. I promise that's it. This is going to be the last question of substance. Um, Kirsten, I fear this is probably going to be yours. And then I'm going to ask the panellists um, one by one to just throw in their last comments based on um, all of the, the journey we've been on over the last hour and a half or so and anything that you think needs to be rounded up. But my last question of detail is... How will PBS prescriptions work for those who dose at more than one pharmacy each week? For instance, some people have to do that due to pharmacies being closed on weekends. Thanks, Melanie. That's a good question. Um, that's something we're working to operationalise at the moment. Um, it's usual for PBS prescriptions to be dispensed by one pharmacy um, and not across multiple pharmacies. Um, there may be some situations where um, we can work with sort of those two pharmacies to make arrangements um, between them around how they might want to manage um, the dispense quantity, but also potentially op options around um, repeat prescriptions and that being available to um, the patient at one pharmacy um, while the original sits with another. Um, but I would ask that we um, just bear with us on that one. Um, it's one that we're working through the detail of at the moment and we will make sure that that's added to um, our fact sheet material as we, um, as we go forward by the end of the week. Thanks, Kirsten. And I think that does reinforce that people do need to keep their eyes on those websites for updates as they come forward. Everyone's working really hard to look at the case-by-case -case examples that are being provided um, to ensure that the, the provisions of the, the new regime can take those into account. So um, that's what we're going to do. Um, I'm now going to go to each of the panellists to provide any final comments, but I just want to um, refer people who've put their questions in through Q&A I'm sorry we haven't got to them all, but just um, to be clear, I'm not ignoring anyone deliberately. We've got like 372 questions that haven't been answered still on the Q&A thing at the moment. So that's why I've sort of said we've, we've gone a half hour over now, but don't freak out if your question wasn't answered. We're going to take them on notice and publish the answers as we can progressively over the coming days. So thanks so much for bearing with us. And I might just go around the table again. I'm going to finish with David and Kirsten this time because I feel like they've been asking, answering a lot of questions as we go. Ellie, we haven't heard from you for a while, mate. What are you taking out of the last hour and a half worth of content? And what um, final thoughts would you like to share? Uh, I'll try and be super quick. Um, it has been really great being part of this and really interesting to to be a part of it. So thanks everyone for participating. Um, I would just like to reiterate that we will be trying to get more information for people on pharmacotherapy as, a, as the people that we work with the most. Um, uh, and so we'll be having that up on our website very soon. It'll include some information about our member organisations who will also be supporting our community in the different states and territories. Um, and I also would just like to reiterate what Chris was saying about, like, please, please look after our community. There's a lot of very vulnerable people who do not have a lot of power. So thank you so much, everyone. Thanks, Ellie. Beck, how are you going there in Queensland? Queensland's been one of the jurisdictions that the implementation will be particularly challenging in. How are you guys feeling three days out? Uh, well, a little nervous like everyone else, I think. Um, I I just, I also want to throw my weight behind um, Chris's very um, articulate plea that actually 
Um, you know, there's a lot of goodwill on the side of government for this. I know from the chat that there's some people who aren't yet feeling that love, but um, as someone who works closely with government on a range of issues, I um, I just want to say that it, it it's genuine this time around. There's nobody who's looking to cause disruption to a program that so many people need access to. We're looking to grow it and keep it um, sustainable um, for the community well into the future. So if you, you're in Queensland and you're a prescriber or a community pharmacy and you have concerns, the Department of Health here is engaged in this conversation as well, and I'm sure that's true across the country. So um, before you make decisions about staying in a program or leaving a program, I'd ask you to just touch base with um, your state health department and see what additional measures, because um, obviously there will be things that haven't been properly um visible to the system up to this point that will only become kind of apparent as implementation begins. Um, and let's work through those issues together um, rather than um, uh, putting people who are dependent on medications in a position where they might have to do all the heavy lifting themselves to find a new dispenser or prescriber, which we all know will be super difficult at this time. I think that's an important message too, Beck, is that the next six months while we have this transitional period in place, is a time for us to all think about what we can do to assist in smoothing the implementation going forward. So we've got six months to try and figure out how we do this better and make sure that it's well supported going forward. And I think that's something for us all to take away from this as well. John, we haven't heard from you for a bit after your lovely intro this morning. How do you feel as someone who's coming new to this role? How do you feel about the changes and what are some of the things that stuck out to you of what people have said today? I'm very grateful for everyone took the time to be here today and people answering questions, asking questions as well, government being um, so open and flexible around this um, and making sure that no one falls through the crack. I think Chris, our president, expressed very nicely that we really need to ensure that um, everyone is supported in the process, especially our vulnerable community members. Um, I'm very happy about this change. It's so important um, to make sure that we reduce the stigma and people can access that crucial medication, um, medications. So I'm... Um, very grateful for it all, but I do think that um, we just need to make sure the implementation is done as best as possible, and that takes collaborative efforts. Um, so having this conversation today, but moving forward as well to keep being constructive and working together and not, you know, um, coming from an angle of just, you know, letting our feelings guide us, but really thinking logically, how can we do this together and support each other? Thanks, John. Chris, what do you reckon? How would you like to round this up? Um, well, listen, thanks very much for the opportunity, Mel. Um, I think the the idea of this really was about health equity, but also about increasing access. We know that there are a number of different uh kind of bottlenecks within the system, um, you know, and and this this has been a big one for us. Um, and, and so I'm hoping that as the implementation and the feedback from uh, in stakeholders comes back and, uh, and that the modifications are made to really ensure that we can get maximum bang for our buck out of this investment from the government, um, you know, I think we we need to keep our eyes on the prize that, you know, this is about in, increasing equitable access for our community members uh, and 
uh, and 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 there, there was there was no thought about excluding people from any market marketplace whatsoever. And so, if that is a a byproduct, then uh, then we need to keep discussing those things and and make sure that uh, that access. Um, is increased. Um, uh, I've already, I've already kind of um, said a few words on, on other parts of um, of of the program, um, but but I would just again appeal to people to uh, keep communicating. Um, Able certainly for consumers is open uh, for all of your feedback. Um, whether you're a consumer or a pharmacist, we'll 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 take it and we'll pass it on because it's all part of the same big system, which is about helping our community to have a meaningful uh, and respected life. Uh, so, look, thank you. Uh, I've uh, I've seen a lot of uh, people who are. I mean, you can you can feel that the the vibe is. Um, is is one of frustration, and I hope as we go forwards, um, you know, we'll we'll be able to work together to increase access and increase choice for consumers around the country, and uh, and uh, and at the same time, um, you know, have good outcomes for pharmacists and prescribers and everybody involved. Thanks, Chris, Kirsten, and David. Um, there've been a lot of detailed questions here today. Um, how do you feel about implementation going forward? And are there any last thoughts that you wanted to share coming out of the questions that we've taken so far? Uh, thanks, Melanie. So I think that um, in terms of what we've heard today, like many of those questions have, have come up before. Uh, and I think um, that, that really we've been talking about quite a short runway, if you like, from the announcement of this uh, measured by government to its implementation. Uh, and that means that those messages uh, haven't been able to get um, traction uh, out um, in the community, probably in the way um, that we hope that it would. Uh, and so whether that's consumers or pharmacists or prescribers uh, or other um, interactions that we have with our state and territory colleagues. Uh, so we will continue to um, push messages out uh, as um, we can in partnership uh, with uh, with uh, advocates, uh, with the peak bodies of a variety of different groups, whether that's Guild or PSA or Shipper in the pharmacy space, uh, and indeed uh, with the states and territories, uh, because I think uh, from what Chris was saying earlier, uh, we're all on the same page. We all want the same outcome here, and that's um, equitable, ongoing, um, e and there's access that's as easy as possible uh, for consumers. Uh, and that's regardless of the type of medicine uh, that you might take. And so I think that's, um, you know, that's one of the things that has, um, you know, pushed us along uh, in that space. And that's what we'll continue to work with all stakeholders um, in the sector in partnership to achieve. Thanks. And Kirsten, what would you like to add? What's David missed? You guys have been working so closely together on these changes. I feel like you're... Um, almost speak and finishing each other's sentences at this point. How would you like to finish David's sentence? Well, yeah, I think it's taking both of us, um, Melanie, that's for sure. Um, I'd just like to thank everyone um, who's been on the panel and also um, the feedback that we've been receiving from stakeholders and people that participate in uh, the programs. It's really helped um, shape the direction of our um, information and um, where we've kind of taken this pretty significant reform. Um, as David mentioned, 
you know, we are aware that the time frame is tight, um, but we have been working um, around the clock to, to move this forward. And I think to sort of go back to what Chris was saying, what's been driving us forward is to um, make these changes so that um, we can get more equitable and particularly, I think, affordable access to ODT medicines and to bring this in line with what is usual PBS arrangements. So um, while there's going to be some transition issues and we will continue to monitor those um, and continue to look at where there needs to be adjustments going forward, um, I think we will we will get to a state where this is going to be a really positive place to be. So um, I feel quite privileged to have been involved in this work and to have brought it along this far. So um, thank you to all who have contributed as we've moved um, into this sort of very interesting, but um, I know very quite tense stage, but um, I have faith that we'll get there. Thank you. And I'd like to round this up as well by thanking everyone who's been part of this forum today on the panel. Um, that's been a long Q&A session. Thank you for staying the extra time to try and round up some of those key questions and to provide those perspectives on implementation going forward. Um, I do note that we now are sitting at 392 questions on the chat. So what we're going to do is, given that we can't keep going all night, what we're going to do is answer these in two ways. We're going to take this away and I just want to remind everyone that as David and Kirsten have said, the fact sheets are being updated progressively. So a lot of these questions that have come in um, are the same question in different versions um, throughout the, the afternoon. So the where there are sort of high frequency questions, that information is probably stuff that's going to be incorporated in the changes to the fact sheets going forward. But where there are particular questions that are a little bit different to the written material, we will try and provide answers to those and publish those up on the AADC website, um, where you will also be able to find the recording of this afternoon's event um, in about a day or so. So keep your eyes peeled on those websites and those links that you've already been given for the fact sheets. But also please feel free to keep going to the AADC website, refer your friends and colleagues to the conversation, the recording of this event, because I think we have managed to answer quite a lot of the questions this afternoon. And also we'll try and publish some additional answers going forward as well. So thank you everyone for your time this afternoon and we will move forward into the Brave New World post, post the 1st of July. And with any luck in the next little while, we'll see greater access and certainly we're going to see more affordable healthcare for a group of people who've really needed it for quite a long time. So that's it's all going to be a wonderful thing at the end of the day. We've just got to get from here to there and I think we can do that together. So thank you everyone for joining us this afternoon and keep your eyes peeled for updates on those websites. Thanks so much.